Well, hello, and thank you very much for um, coming here this Sunday afternoon. Um, I'm going to talk about my latest book, The Button Box, the story of women's lives in the 20th century, told through the clothes they wore. And although I'm standing behind a lectern, you needn't feel nervous, I'm not about to lecture you, but it's just an easy way of managing notes. Um, I'm going to introduce some of the themes from the book, and then I'm going to close with um, a short reading. Um, but I thought I'd begin um, by um, gi giving you a short piece of advice written by a fellow, uh, written by a woman driver, Miss Dorothy Levitt, in 1906. Most of you, I think, will have driven here today or been driven here today. So it seemed to me that thinking about cars would be a good way um, to begin. Um, if you're going to drive alone on the highways and byways, it might be advisable to carry a small revolver. <laughs> um, I have an automatic Colt and find it very easy to handle. For less challenging moments when driving, Miss Levitt suggested that a drawer beneath the seat is the secret of the dainty motoriste. Into its recesses put gloves, clean gloves, veil, handkerchief, powder puff, hairpins and hand mirror. Some chocolates are very soothing sometimes. I came across Dorothy Levitt when researching a chapter about early women drivers and, and pilots and the fantasy of travel um, for ordinary women at a time when very few people owned cars. My inspiration was um, a gabardine, a vintage gabardine I found on a market store with marbled grey buttons and a picture postcard of a young woman who is sitting astride a motorbike with a gabardine buttoned up to her throat. Um, she's actually posing in front of a painted country lane, but she looks absolutely poised to zoom away. Um, the number plate on her bike says 1929. 1929 was an important year for British women because it was the first women they could vote after the achievement of universal suffrage the year before. So not surprisingly, this was a year in which many young women felt that the future, and indeed the road ahead, belonged to them. And this picture postcard of this stationary young woman um, intrigued me for some time before I discovered that actually fantasy photographs like this one were quite the thing between the wars. All that you needed was a trip to the local photographer's studio on your high street and the confidence to strike a pose. The young woman in that photograph was wearing a coat very like those worn by daredevil drivers like Miss Levitt before her. But those early drivers, of course, had need of sturdy coats when cars lacked most of the features we consider essential today. In addition to the small matter of a gun, Miss Levitt advised that women should carry two vanity mirrors. The first was to check for the smuts on your face, the second to hold aloft so you could see who was coming up behind you. <coughs> no wonder that chocolates were very soothing sometimes. No faint-hearted driver, Miss Levitt established a women's world record of 91 miles an hour in 1906 and thought nothing of motoring to Warwick uh, from London and back for Sunday lunch. She thought nothing of the 12-mile-an-hour speed limit either, and she'd only been driving eight months but had already been fined twice for exceeding it. Another speed-loving sportswoman, Mildred Bruce, combined a passion for aviation with an equal enthusiasm for fast cars and fast boats. Legend has it that she bought her first plane while out shopping for a dress. The dress didn't fit. So she returned to examine the Blackbird Bluebird, the Blackburn Bluebird she'd seen in a car showroom earlier and bought the plane instead. Most of the women I came across um, while researching led, of course, far more pedestrian lives than Mildred Bruce and Dorothy Levitt. And the majority, like that young woman sitting astride her stationary motorbike, had ventured only in their dreams. Um, but together they gave me, um, their stories gave me the scope to explore the ways women's life changed over the 20th century and indeed the ways in which they did not. And the way their clothes said, um, told, said something about who they were. My grandmother's button box was my starting point. Um, I say button box, but it was actually a tin with a, it's a Quality Street tin, um, with a Regency gent and lady on the lid. Um, lots of women I discover have button tins rather than boxes. Um, 
my grandmother was a proficient seamstress. Um, sewing, she belonged to a generation, of course, who had sewing embedded in their lives, but she, um, sewing was one of the subjects she taught as an elementary school teacher in the years before and during the First World War. And later she took a course in tailoring and during the Second World War, and for some years thereafter, she sewed professionally. She was one of the little dressmakers to women, to whom women took their clothes for letting out and taking in and indeed making from scratch. She taught me to sew, though I should say very quickly. I've forgotten everything I learned. Uh, and she made most of my childhood clothes in the 1960s, just as she'd made my mother's clothes before me. Um, she made some of my, uh, my mother's clothes in her adult life too, fashioning sort of some of the evening gowns and uh, floor-length coats that my mother wore to dinner dances in the 1950s. So when my grandmother died, her quality street tin, brimful of buttons, came to me. And over the years, my own buttons have joined the mix. And indeed, my mother's buttons too, because she, having a mother who at one time sewed for a living, has made it her business to do as little sewing as possible. My button box therefore connects three generations, and in fact, possibly four, because some of the buttons in my grandmother's button box probably originated with her mother, my great-grandma. <clears throat> I think all of us who have family buttons feel an emotional connection with them. Not only are they an alphabet of texture, shape and colour, but they're also instant reminders of the past. I can hardly grasp the tiny buttons that fastened 1920s shoes. Um, there's a pair of octagonal buttons from the 1940s that fastened a suit jacket my great-aunt wore in that era of morale-boosting suits. Um, and there are some wonderful, chunky turquoise buttons from a suit my mother wore in the 1960s, and ladybird and water lily buttons from my childhood. Many of us remember buttons like these, worn by ourselves, our mothers, our grandmothers. A Times leader writer described button boxes as an epitome of family history. But I decided to use mine as a way of opening, opening up a much broader narrative about women's lives. <clears throat> so family material was my starting point, but I then looked to fiction, to memoirs, to diaries, to archives and so on. I read accounts of dressmakers and dressmaking, um, of wartime office work. I wanted to write as broadly as possible and to cover multiple themes, suffragettes, women's work, homemaking, domesticity, uh, wartime, and so on. And because buttons were my starting point, I was able to indulge myself in research for sort of lighter themes, the liking for Diamante, vintage clothes, Bieber, um, the pleasure of dressing up and haberdashery. Clothes change our view of the world and the world's view of ours, Virginia Woolf wrote in Orlando. They can be emblems of a great many things, frivolity, frugality, security, independence. And for at least the first half of the 20th century, and indeed many years before, they were very strong indicators of social class. They also, of course, reflect social and cultural changes. My grandma was born in the 1890s and came of an age when more women were entering the professions. As I've said, she was an elementary school teacher in the years just before the First World War, and the young professional women of her day wore long dark skirts and white blouses, elaborate white blouses, finished with all kinds of tucks and flourishes. The white blouse became such a uniform that from the late 19th century it gave rise to the term the white blouse revolution to describe or to reflect, rather, the increasing numbers of young women who are entering the professional workforce. The white blouses they wore were far easier to buy than to make. And, of course, ready-made garments were a godsend for busy professional women, but their quality was invariably disparaged. In 1910, the dressmaking magazine Fashions for All condemned them as a snare and a delusion, and an example of how money may be wasted. There was a moral dimension too, of course, um, as demonstrated by Home Notes, who said, well, that to some, ready-made clothing was a sign of greater wisdom on the, sign of the, women, on the part of the women of the day, who no longer wished to be slaves of the needle. 
but, it said, wagging its finger very seriously, um, they were, in fact, ready-made clothes were, in fact, a gross extravagance when their purchase means only an increased opportunity for idleness or a waste of time worse than idleness. So be they school moms or clerical workers, women were supposed to hurry home to their sewing machines. Fast forward to the late 40s, the 1950s, when my mother was an office worker and things had changed. Ready-made clothing was no longer being disparaged. Much was made of the pastel-coloured blouses in terraline and similar man-made fabrics, um, which transformed life for office workers. Blouses could now be hung over the ba uh, bath overnight to drip dry. And what's more, as Marks and Spencers reminded its staff in a bid to get them to promote these new uh, fabrics, these blouses were shrink-proof, moth-proof and rot-proof. Now there's a recommendation. <coughs> Though my grandmother was a working woman, she spent a great deal of her time in the kitchen. Um, the women of my family have always washed clean and scrubbed. Um, but as you know, in the 1920s, the difficulty of living, finding living servants meant that many middle-class women um, discovered the actual work of their kitchens for the very first time. Uh, newspapers and magazines printed articles um, advising them how to go about this um, and how to buy or make attractive overalls and aprons to assist them. Readers of The Lady magazine, an upmarket publication, were advised to protect their clothes with something called the Frazerton overall, which was available in mauve, blue, tourmaline or mignonette, colours whose very shades sound soothing, and the overalls were individually named and priced starting with Hilda, 12 shillings and six, moving through Emily and Florence to the most expensive, Julia, <laughs> 15 shillings and sixpence. Ten years on, in its own bid to reassure the novice housewife, the equally upmarket Needlewoman magazine um, promised frock overalls with handsome bone buttons for the messiest of jobs, it said, with an added degree of smartness sort of contradictory assertion, if ever there was one. This was the era when colourful crockery also began to make an appearance in kitchens. Um, in fact, one journalist joked that for those who were lucky enough to own a piece of Clarice Cliff tableware, there might even be something likeable about doing the washing up. <coughs> now that the middle-class woman was doing her own housework, there was a greater desire for colour in plates and saucepans, as well as in aprons and overalls. Whether women identified themselves as a Florence or a Julia, a Hilda indeed, um, advertisers keen to put an attractive gloss on domesticity pictured them doing the housework in smart clothes. New labour-saving devices were starting to come onto the market and hot on the heels of universal suffrage, Electrolux, promised to confer the freedom of the house on the woman who used its vacuum cleaners. Of course, very few women could afford a vacuum cleaner or <coughs> any other labour-saving device at this time. But if you believed the advertisements, the interwar woman could leave her brand-new gas cooker in sole command of dinner while she went upstairs to make the beds. <coughs> Best of all was the Atmos mechanical housemaid a contraption which apparently enabled its owner to read the newspaper while it washed, dried, ironed, and did everything but cook the dinner. Yes, please. <coughs> Excuse me. Nancy Mitford's irreverent upper-class novel, The Pursuit of Love, <coughs> provided its own assessment of housework. This was 1945, and so her readers were in need of some amusement. And uh, the novel's heroine, newly in introduced to the task of house housework, <coughs> complains to a friend. How dreadful it is. Cooking, I mean. That oven. There's that awful hot blast hitting one in the face. I don't wonder people sometimes put their heads in and leave them out of sheer misery. <laughs> And I wish you could have seen the hoover running away with me. 
I think housework is far more tiring than hunting is. No comparison. <laughs> Yet after hunting, we had eggs for tea and were made to rest for hours. But after housework, people expect one to go on just as if nothing special had happened. Cheerful aprons notwithstanding, the reality then as now was that cleaning requires effort, eats up time and can be filthy work. As early as 1924, some 50 years before campaigns for wages for housewives, good housekeeping asked, should wives have wages? And added, even in a coal mine, there are shifts. <coughs> in the early years of the 20th century, most women owned few clothes, but they nonetheless observed the rules that trickled down from the leisured classes. They looked to the gentry for ideas about fashion and a sense of style, and they knew they were judged to be undressed if they left the house without wearing a hat and gloves. By contrast, we only had to glance at Downton Abbey to know that a leisured woman had a great many clothes and changed them several times a day. Indeed, a lady's manner of living mainly consisted of dressing. There was a tailored coat and skirt for morning shopping, the carriage dress and furs for afternoon calls, the tea gown worn on returning home and then later retiring to her room. The lady rested in her negligee. One commentator wondered from what the lady rested, unless it was the exhaustion of changing her clothes. <laughs> <coughs> In years, but it wasn't just the leisured classes, of course, who observed the rules about how to dress. In years gone by, when what you wore said where you stood in the social spectrum, there was considerable pressure on women to get it right and make the right choice for the occasion. Here's the novelist, Rose Macaulay, exclaiming in 1926 about the things you mustn't do, mustn't wear. You must, for instance, spend a great deal of money on silk stockings when, for so much less, you could have got artificial silk or lyle thread. Why? Did not these meaner items clothe the leg? The same with gloves, she complained, with shoes, with frocks, with garments underneath frocks. You had somehow to conform, conform to a ritual, to be like the people you knew. Things didn't really change until the 1960s. The 60s happened for everyone, of course, but not necessarily at the same time. It took until the 1970s for some aspects of that decade to alter the provincial landscape, and even then, some people felt the 60s happened elsewhere. One clear way in which that decade lit up the provinces, however, was in the matter of dress. The switch from accented femininity and formality into something free and easy, was a boon to every woman willing to adopt the look. In 1964, my mum bought a short skirted turquoise suit with those chunky turquoise buttons I mentioned, and all but one of those buttons survived to this day, a testament to her fondness for this particular suit with its bright, boxy shape and buttoned breast pockets and cuffs. And even the four large holes punched in each button for thread have the wide-eyed look of the day. They may be ordinary buttons, but their style, zooming colour and chunky shape speak to the graphic simplicity of the 1960s. Mums need not be mumsy anymore, and mine was a modern mum. She took me to the park wearing a baggy jumper, ski pants and slip-on pumps, and pushed me in my pushchair wearing a tightly belted trench coat. Women of my mother's generation were only in their 30s when the 60s struck and were just as ready to pull on short, if not quite so short, skirts as the next woman. A new kind of magazine for the new kind of woman burst onto the scene around this time, and that magazine was Nova. Pitched at women who make up their own minds, Nova told its readers, Nova is a magazine for women who cook, sew, like clothes and realise that these are not enough. They still have time to think. Extraordinary as it may seem, <laughs> the notion that women think still required some underlining. <clears throat> Nova was a magazine to keep and come back to. Cutting-edge design, 
complementing lengthy articles expressing cutting-edge views. And there are audacious cover features too, including that from March 1967, which showed a man and a woman on the cover beneath the words, yes, we are living in sin. No, we're not getting married. Why? It's out of date. Picture that incendiary headline thumping onto suburban doormats. I was reading Jackie in the late 1960s with its picture book love stories and advertisements for sanitary towels, blue eyeshadow, identity bracelets and spot cream. And in May, uh, in May 1969, um, it advertised two careers. Um, with the Women's Royal Army Corps, you could be a PT instructor, a shorthand typist or a kennel maid. Not many girls get to be WRAC kennel maids and grooms, but you might be lucky, the advertisement said. <laughs> Alternatively, you could nurse with the Queen Alexander uh, Royal Army Nursing Corps. Men would land on the moon two months later, but Jackie's readers were not encouraged to reach too far. <laughs> By the 1960s, women had more spending power than formerly and more married women uh, were working and able to buy more of what they wanted in a world of rapidly expanding consumerism. But this, of course, was not the picture for everyone. And in 1964, the Guardian woman's editor, Mary Stott, was shocked to hear of married women who did not have a personal allowance from their husband. She assumed they were in the minority and was completely unprepared for the correspondence that followed including a response from one Margaret Wheeler, who outlined her journey from independent and equal teacher to dependent wife and mother, step by sorry step. My mother also gave up work to start a family. She'd loved office life, but there was no question of her continuing to work. Instead, she took lessons in mothering from the baby book supplied by the nursing home where I was born in the late 1950s. According to this book, I was the happy event she was expecting. And she was expecting, not pregnant, that word being considered too graphic then. Um, Picture Post photojournalist Grace Robertson recalled that during this period, a series of her photographs was killed by that magazine because it feared that realistic shots of a young woman in labour would alarm too many readers. <coughs> My mother's baby book recommended that the lady-in-waiting should try to lie down for an hour each afternoon, at least half an hour was essential, and should make a point of walking a couple of miles a day. The information on labour ran to only two pages, but there were several comfy pages of knitting patterns for the layette. <laughs> My mother was advised to establish a timetable and stick to it. Uh, though not to make baby or herself. Am I the culprit? Can you hear me if I talk? No. Right. Well, I'll probably I'll lead you in some sort of exactly. <laughs> I'm standing before a sort of lecture, so perhaps I should be conducting you in song while we wait for the uh, for the mic. Um, oh, gosh. Startling. You'll be very grateful I didn't try to sing at you while we were waiting. Um, my mother was advised to stick to a, to establish a timetable and to stick to it, though not to make baby or herself a martyr to it. And she was to put baby outside in the pram all day, winter or summer, rain or shine. The only really unsuitable weather, she was told, is fog. She was not a martyr to that advice, either. Some 1950s toddlers wore the all-in-one pixie suit, described as mother's pride and joy. My own recollections of early childhood clothing merge with evidence supplied by photographs and a couple of actual frocks. One with the smocking, that was such a feature of children's clothing then, and a dress embroidered with umbrellas perhaps intended for when Baby was outside all day in her pram. 
Memories of childhood clothing often form part of a child's early comprehension of the world. One of the earliest memories of children's author, Alison Utley, admittedly a 19th century child, was of being pressed against four striped skirts with silver buckles or held to stout bosoms encased in hard whalebone stays. There was bead trimming down many of these bosoms, she remembered, which scratched my cheeks or braid, twisting in fascinating spirals. Writer Emma Smith recalls a dress knitted by hand from a thick silk yarn, soft to touch, but slithery. But what teases the very edge of memory, she writes, is its colour. Strong, pure, sugary pink. Even after 80 years, I can recall the shock of pleasure at the delicious pinkness of my miniature pink silk dress. Other children recall bulky underwear or layers of clothing to keep out the cold. Diana Athill describes being so swaddled in clothing for a drive in an open cart that she could barely move. By contrast, of course, memories of poorer households frequently describe the shame and humiliation of cast-off clothing and of having too few clothes. Before she formed the Women's Social and Political Union and became known as a suffragette, Emmeline Pankhurst was a poor law guardian in Manchester. And as part of her role, <coughs> she visited the Manchester workhouse and was appalled by the plight of what she saw there. Little girls aged seven and eight years old on their knees, scrubbing the cold stones of long corridors. These little girls were clad summer and winter, in thin cotton frocks, low in the neck and short-sleeved. At night they wore nothing at all, nightdresses being considered too good for paupers. Emmeline Pankhurst wrote that some of the things she witnessed then helped to propel her towards militancy some years later. Emmeline Pankhurst's recollections actually echoed in my great-aunt's experiences of childhood. Um, I've written about, more fully about my great-aunt's beginnings in, in, in a family memoir, which is my last book. Um, my great-aunt was adopted in 1909 at the age of eight, and before her adoption spent much of her childhood in an industrial school in Derbyshire. One of the things she stressed when describing her adoption many, many years later was her surprise and delight at being given clothes, clothes she could choose, clothes of her own and hair ribbons and changes of underwear. So we, we shouldn't underestimate the meaning of clothes for those who have never had them, <coughs> had their own rather. But if children's clothing is recalled with fondness, um, such as Emma Smith's fondness in her delicious pink dress or despair, my great-aunt recalling her childhood, the adult clothes that represent a rite of passage are recalled with equal intensity, and very often so is the price paid for them. The writer Jennifer Wayne remembered with intense fondness her first ever adult dress, the purple dress she wore in the 1930s. It had ruching, gathering, yards of bias-cut skirt and stiffened epaulettes tapering to a point. My mother and I bought it at Cheeseman's in Lewisham and it cost nearly three pounds. My first bought evening dress for my last school dance. There I was, nearly 19, standing in front of Cheeseman's Cheville mirror, stunned with amazement and gratification. Note that she was 19, nearly 19, when she, before she wore her first adult garment. And for many young women of her generation, that first adult garment was also the first time they chose their own clothes. <coughs> Jennifer Wayne kept this purple dress for many years. Um, it even provided the title for her autobiography. My own equivalent of Wayne's purple dress was a a blue and white crepe de chine suit I found in a vintage shop in Bath in the mid-1970s. It was my 18th year, and to me, this suit represented sophisticated chic in abundance. I, I wore that crepe suit until it died a death. 
And when that moment finally came, snipped off one of its pearl buttons as a keepsake. Um, but I want to close by reading a, a short section from a chapter in the book about the 1960s and, uh, and the contribution to the youthquake made by a doll. I think some of you will recognise her. Enter Cindy. <laughs> the free-swinging grown-up girl who lives her own life and dresses the way she likes. What could be more appealing than a doll with whom you could play at being a woman? I was six when I met her. The outfit came first, chosen by me in Redgates, a toy shop too small for all it contained, whose riches included cellophane-wrapped red pl plastic lipsticks as hard as the pink plastic tubes that encase them, sparkly powder compacts without powder, and other tiny accoutrements with which to ape adult life. And among them, a pair of pink plastic Cinderella shoes with glitter suspended in heels which, in memory, tower several inches high, although that is unlikely. The Cindy outfit I chose featured a brown suede jacket, similar to those worn by mods, and in an odd synchronicity, some country ladies. There were flat lace-ups, a brown tweed skirt and an olive green polo-necked sweater which fastened all the way down the back with tiny poppers that peeled open in an instant for the girl eager to undress her doll. The outfit worn by this free-swinging grown-up girl was quietly um, rem was, was reminiscent of those worn by the stockbroker wives, quietly seething in Penelope Mortimer's 1958 novel, Daddy's Gone A-Hunting. It was July 1964, but the 60s were not yet happening in a big way in my hometown, or at least not noticeably within my landscape. The Cindy clothes were an unexpected gift. I had to wait till Christmas for the doll that would wear them. And after that, so many outfits bought for Christmases and birthdays and with pocket money I saved. Two or three stand out. A quilted blue ski jacket with a fur-trimmed hood. More people were taking foreign holidays. A nurse's uniform with separate elasticated cuffs like miniature cotton puffballs. And an air hostess's navy blue suit with a tiny blue plastic BOAC bag. Nurse or air hostess were, of course, still standard fare for girls. <coughs> As Lorna Sage pointed out, before women realised that air hostessing was actually glorified waitressing, the job was thought to have prestige and even glamour. I'd like to think I remember Cindy's uniforms because I already felt affronted by the limited possibilities they held out but I suspect I just like their accessories. I don't think Cindy was a teacher. Vogue pictured a young teacher in a 1960s fashion shoot, wearing her buttoned-up cardigan, shepherding her young class through the playground, teaching and cardigans forever linked in a stereotype of teacher's clothing. Catherine Whitehorn affronted her early 60s readership when, as a new um, observer fashion editor, she spoke out against the cardigan. <coughs> Cindy wore low-court shoes, which were nothing like the stilettos Barbie totted in, nor the white shoes Kathleen wears in Edna O'Brien's novel Girl with Green Eyes, which require her to walk upstairs sideways because um, of their long pointed toes. Um, there were red Wellingtons to go with Cindy's black plastic PVC mag and her plastic scarlet bag. She had ski pants too, like the ski pants worn by my mum with stirrups underfoot, the kind that create a taut outline, suggesting that women's legs do not bend. <laughs> Though of their time, they were nothing like as hip as the pastel-coloured pedal pushers in mint green or pink worn by the Shangri-Las. A later edition, Cindy's boyfriend Paul, the well-dressed young man, whose clothes are designed for a freewheeling life, was the kind of young man any parent would be pleased to have escort their daughter. Paul rode a scooter, not a motorbike. 
which suggested safe modernity to the adult mind, because by now scooters had been tamed, though it was obvious to any contemporary child that he was one of those adults who try just a bit too hard. <clears throat> and his tagline gave the game away. What self-respecting groovy girl wanted a well-dressed young man? Patch, Cindy's younger sister, an even later addition, designed to woo playmates not yet ready for the grown-up doll, had freckles of the kind a child might draw, dot, 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 and nylon hair, shinier than anything that could be achieved with Silvergrin, Silvercrin or Vosin. I played with all three dolls, though Paul was not my type. Nor Patch, really. Such good, clean fun. No Afghan coat or paisley swirling dress. No tuning in or dropping out. Though the 60s moved on, and I with them, out of the Cindy landscape. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lynn. We, we have time for some questions from the audience. <coughs> do we have, do we have a, questions? A lady to your left, Patrick. <coughs> um, I think my mother had exactly the same suit as your mother. Did. <laughs> <laughs> and it just brought it all back to me. And um, yes, hers was quite short. We're obviously of similar age. And I'm just thinking, I have a button box that's in a tin and my mum did too, and I must dig that button out. Did your mum, do you know where she bought the suit? Oh, was it gosh. CNAs or anything, was it? Uh, no, it was possibly, it was more likely to be Cole Brothers in Sheffield, because that's where we oh, went right. for, okay. we, were li we lived in Chesterfield, and um, <coughs> we used to go to Sheffield to buy sort of up-to-the-minute clothes. Chesterfield was rather sort of slack where modernity uh, came in, so I think it was probably from Cole Brothers, which is actually John Lewis. Oh, right. Sorry, okay. yes. Well, we're, we're, we're down in Sussex, so I, I don't know where yeah. Mum got that suit from, but I think I might have a button. Ah, oh, how strange. So I must stick it up. Yes, yes. So it was this, uncanny. Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry, like, like the last, uh, last lady, it's more of a sort of a, what you've evoked, and I just wanted to share with you that as a child, we used to have to catch the bus to Lewisham to go shopping at Cheeseman's because the daughter of the Cheeseman's had married Colin Cowdery, the vice captain of the England cricket team, and my parents felt that by shopping there we were somehow being patriotic <laughs> <laughs> and, and supporting the right side. <laughs> Those were the days, yeah. I'm dying to know, was your mother's baby book the Truby King method? <laughs> no, no, it was actually something um, given to her by, um, though of course it was the that era, but it was actually something given to her by the nursing home, um, and uh, you know, with the sort of soft pastel pinks and blues on, on, on the cover, it was actually a sort of um, booklet giving you know women different you know pages of information and so on. Um, because I, I, my mother's equivalent <coughs> told them to you know, leave the baby far away so you can't hear it cry while yes. you're, you're well, and because we lived in prisons, our governor's houses had very long gardens, <laughs> so we all got very good lungs. Yes. <laughs> um, another, another question. Stunned silence. I I, can I ask a question? Yes. Actually, because I suspect that some of you in the audience have uh, can remember prices you paid for particular garments that meant something to you years ago. Um, I don't know if any of you can recall the dress, uh, you know, the price you paid for a dress you wore or something else you wore to an important occasion or something that mattered and meant something to you. Indeed, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it evokes entirely my childhood, actually. Um, I saw online the other day that all the Vogue patterns are now digitised and how wonderful that was. And it made me feel what we've lost is the tactile stuff, which clear, I haven't read your book yet, but I've, got, I've just bought it. Thank um, you very much. <laughs> it's the feeling of those buttons and everything. I mean, it, to me, what you're writing about is... Yeah, it's very much touch, actually. Yes, it and is. And those patterns, they're great. They're all digitised now and everything. But um, it's actually taking that tissue out of those packets and unfolding it and mm. that edge to it. And then the way the ropes fold, it, it, to me, it 
immediately I think of the real thing as touch and they and the digital thing is something we're losing it's a sense thing yes and I mean, smell and so on yes I, I agree I mean my original liking for buttons of course came about as a child because there's nothing I like better than sort of rummaging through the button tin and that was a very tactile experience um, uh, but of course fabrics and, and and clothing is you know it's such a sensory experience too isn't it like sort of Emma Smith recalling the pleasure of this silk dress and you don't get that when you're looking at a pattern on a computer screen <coughs> you haven't said very much about um, men's clothing, except no. at the end. Uh, but my father, who was born in 1909, never bought an item of clothing in his life. <laughs> Everything was bought by my mother, either from shop or from someone who came round to the door <coughs> from what was known as the club. Mm. Yes. And all the garments seemed to be different shades of a colour called heather mixture. <laughs> what, well, yeah, beige, okay, yes. So I don't know if anyone wishes to elaborate any further on that. Well, I think it was quite common for, I mean, of course, I, I haven't mentioned uh, men and apologies, very much an apologies to the men in the audience, but that's because my focus has been, you know, w women's lives and, w and women's clothes. But I think it's very, quite common for women to buy uh, the clothes for their husbands, um, you know, choose their ties and make sure they were sort of dressed properly before they were pushed out of the door first thing in the morning and so on. <coughs> any more questions? I'm sure we have. I remember the smocking, I'm a twin, um, but probably the same age, and uh, my mother used to sit for hours smocking <laughs> our dresses, and I was a tomboy, and there was always a bow at the back, and a dirndl skirt, <coughs> and my twin sister used to look lovely, and I used to hate it, but she spent hours making them. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you say that, because I you know, came across accounts by other twins saying, you know, if one look, was dressed in blue and looked lovely and therefore the other one was dressed in brown or looked, and she wanted the blue. And so there was always some kind of friction because they were obliged to look either different when they didn't want to or the same when they were absolutely not, of course, the same person. Yeah. I, I was fascinated by the attention you draw to the naming of, of garments. My, my extremely Cornish grandmother-in-law um, always used to wear a sort of house coat in the morning for doing her chores, yes. but then would always change to receive in the afternoon into what she called a costume. Yes, indeed. Um, well, of course, costumes are, are, are or a two-piece, indeed. Mm. I mean, something is a smart, a smart outfit, isn't it? So for receiving, as you say. Um, but, uh, of course, we don't think to wear house coats or aprons for you know, cleaning. Don't think to do housework. Actually, I don't, think <laughs> so I don't think to do any cleaning. So there's no wonder I don't need an apron. Uh, but uh. We have another question at the back there. It's just an observation, really. My mum was a school teacher in the, must have been the early 60s, <coughs> and she told me that she was sent home for wearing a sleeveless dress. Gosh. Quite <laughs> How racy. Uh, yes. 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 Well, of course, there was much more flesh on view, and it was challenging, wasn't it? And you know, and freedom. You know, the freedom of shorter clothes in the sixties, just as you know, of course, they were even shorter than they had been in the twenties with the first sort of wave of, of feminism and liberation. But yes, bare arms. You know, thighs revealed. It's just kind of too much. Oh, armpits. Yes. Well, and there, there are still head teachers sending children home against the parents' wishes. So. Clothing is an element of control, perhaps. Of course, Public it can control. be many, many things, can't it? Any more <coughs> questions? Yes. Um, I remember wearing a Liberty Bodice. Ah, oh, yes. And just wonder where the name came from. Oh. Irony. <laughs> well, indeed, irony. That's good. I don't actually. I don't actually know. I, I wore one too. I think um, probably the last generation to wear a Liberty Bodice because it certainly wasn't liberating, was it? Uh, and all those tiny buttons, rubber buttons, that you couldn't quite get your fingers round. So a small child hadn't a hope in hell of actually getting out of it. That is liberty for the mother. <laughs> yes, a, a good idea, yeah. What is it, a sort of vest? Or it was like a vest, but it was quite a, a sort of, uh, almost like an armoured vest. It was quite substantial, and it had rubber buttons. And it actually, in earlier, um, early, well, in the, sort of in the 1950s, early 50s, a child, you could also um, fasten your suspenders 
onto them. But of course, if you're wearing them as a small child, that wasn't an issue. You weren't wearing suspenders. I don't, I don't remember that, but somebody told me that they had a liberty bodies and they could uh, you know, fasten their, uh, their stockings, which suggested to me some sort of ghastly <laughs> encasement that I'm glad to have missed, frankly. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 it wasn't. But uh, that's an interesting question. I'm sorry, I can't answer you. I think this question here that I was just talking the thing about the liberty bodice thing was it was designed to be got out of yourself as opposed to with the help of. Oh, because it was front fastening rather than fastened at the back, perhaps. Ah, thank you, Ollie. Thank you. I know you call it the button box, and I didn't mention it earlier, but you spoke about the tin. And I inherited a tin, and I was also very delighted, I was a nurse, that there was a black magic um, box of chocolates, you know, which obviously a nurse often got. And I, was, I had my eye on it, and uh, the chocolates went quickly, and I've, I've got my uh, buttons in there. But so is, is that in a common thing that you found on your travels, that people collect their buttons in tins? Well, to be honest, I mean, my concern really was, uh, was right to write a broad social history. You know, buttons were my starting off uh, point, and they're the book does contain a small amount of button history. I, I was interested in the kind of broader story, but it's interesting how many people at events like this have said, gosh, I kept my buttons in a tin, I kept my buttons in a tin. Oh, mine was a, you know, a quality street and mine was a milk tray and so on. So I think that is quite common. Of course, anything that you can, you know, any useful receptacle that's empty will do for buttons, and just as button boxes tend, or tins tend to acquire strange small objects that have no reason to be there. I mean, mine held a, held a doll's house doorknob uh, and a cycling proficiency bag, which I presume I left at my grandmother's house one day. <laughs> but it's odd, odds, you know, small tins you know, contain sort of attract buttons, don't they? But there, there was competitive <laughs> tweeting when we were publicising this event online and someone started, put a photograph of their, their mother's button box or button tin online and then everyone else chipped in <laughs> as to, and they were competing as to who had the oldest button ah. tin inherited. And I think the winner was an old box of Meltis Turkish uh, Delight, creme de menthe Delight. Oh. Those green and silver ones from about 1900. Gosh. Any advance on that? I don't know. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm a designer, and I also teach design. And I was just wondering a little something that I've been talking about with my students mm. is how we kind of form those memories and attachments with our clothing. And you mentioned how I think it was your first suit that you had found actually in a charity shop or a thrift mm. shop. And I wondered what your experience was with clothing, whether you make it, you tend to buy it, or you search for it, and you kind of get that part of that adventure and that, that hunt for clothes? Well, I was, I, was, um, I, mean, I was a teenager in the mid-70s, and that was a moment when fashion started looking back, as did so, you know, just, uh, there were so many cultural reappraisals then. And so um, I was, um, you know, de early developed a hankering for vintage, and of course they weren't, so you could actually find, you know, crepe de chine frocks on market stalls sometimes, but you could, um, so my suit came from a, a sort of, a, what was called a second-hand clothes shop, but it was actually, you know, designed for people who wanted things in the 20s, 30s and so on. Um, and, uh, and I early developed that love, and part of that, I think, came from visiting my grandmother and great-aunt's house. They shared a house when I was small because they'd kept things. They'd kept some treasured garments. I don't want to suggest they were living in a museum, um, but they kept objects, um, but they also kept clothes. And so some of those clothes came to me at a time when, you know, I, I would read something in my mother's Nova or 19 or Hun in Honey, which were the magazines I was looking at, or indeed Sunday Times supplements, and there'd be features, you know, and somebody would be wearing a Victorian threaded nightgown one week and the next minute there'd be a sort of 1920s fashion shoot. And it just, you know, those clothes from the past fascinated me. So I think that's where my interest in clothes began and sort of took me back. And amazingly, my grandmother and great aunt would say, oh, yes, I've got. And there would be the ribbon-threaded nightdress and the silk dress of the 1920s or something. And that, the sort of beautiful texture of those clothes, wonderful little glass buttons or whatever, that's where my interest came. But though my grandmother taught me to sew and I did make, you know, used to make myself sort of maxi skirts and smocks, uh, when I was um, a sixth former, um, I have to admit that my my sort of sewing skills stopped there. Um, I have thought in recent years, you no, know, it's time really you should start again. But 
um, I happen to have been writing instead. That's my excuse for ev everything, uh, really, everything I'm not doing. So, so I don't make my own clothes, but I think my, my interest in, in clothing and my love of clothing and some of those old fabrics and buttons stems from some of the d discoveries I made at the house shared by my grandmother and, and great-aunt at that moment when you know, vintage, you know, old was becoming modern, really. Though, of course, in those days, vintage was plain second-hand. You know. <coughs> Going back to vintage clothes, um, not that long ago, my husband's aunt died and they've lived in the farmhouse for nearly 100 years. And when they were turning out, they found such a lot of vintage clothes. It was, it was absolutely amazing, 1920s and before and after. And what we actually did with them, we took them over to Padstow, to the little theatre, where they put on a lot of plays and things. They were absolutely delighted with them. Yes, I bet. Um, my, my, you know, every time I, if I pass a vintage clothes shop, I just have to step in. My heart starts to flutter. Can't afford the prices anymore, of course, these days. But I was thrilled when you mentioned Patch because oh, yeah. all the dolls when <laughs> I was growing up were all so perfect, you know, like blonde little things. <laughs> and when Patch came along, I felt she was a real rebel, like cause she had <laughs> freckles like me and red. This sort of psychedelic red hair, and her clothes were always a bit more edgy. You know? Yes, I mean, she, she, she was an important introduction, wasn't she? Because she was, you know, marketed as a tomboy. Yeah, well, that's and so what you I didn't have her. to be, you know, a feminine little girl. You didn't have mm. to have a bow on your dress. Um, you, you know, she was dressed in in gingham dungarees, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, so oh, just yeah. as Cindy was an, uh, a route into thinking about the sort of you know swinging independent life, this doll was not a baby, and nor was she a little child that you. You had to nurture. You didn't play at being a mother. You played at being a young woman. So Patch was was a tomboy, and that was a, a new departure, wasn't it? Yeah. I was remember being thrilled when um, going to a shop, <coughs> Dingles in Plymouth was the shop, and I remember uh, my mother trying to persuade me to buy a zip-up dress in green and yellow because that would suit my hair better. And I was so thrilled that I persuaded her to let me have the most psychedelic sort of pinks and reds and <laughs> zip-up dress and I just thought you know success I at last chose my own clothes yeah. yes well I think that is <laughs> obviously a very liberating moment isn't it and, and something that wasn't afforded to earlier generations for a long time do, do you think it was significant psychologically for a whole generation of women that suddenly there was this doll that was effectively a grown-up as opposed to a baby yes I think that was hugely significant it's been interesting because I um, I started you know I've been lucky enough to go to you know to attend a few festivals this summer and I started reading Cindy and everybody says oh my Cindy somebody come came up to me at the end and said I've still got my Cindy doll and, and what you know what she represented for women was was, was for girls rather was something quite different you didn't you weren't you didn't have to play at being a mother and she had um you know interesting clothes she was modernity and, and I, I don't think she was ever demonized the way um Barbie, Barbie was be no. Because her, her, her figure wasn't quite so impossible. No, exactly. She, 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 she didn't have... <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't have any sort of pneumatic Her feet were on the ground. And her feet were on the ground. In all, yes, indeed. Uh, we'll leave it there. But uh, she, was, she was much more real, wasn't, mm. wasn't, wasn't she? Though she did, of course, have, you know, shiny, sleek um, nylon hair and very big eyes. But nonetheless, she, you know, she was going places. She was busy. She was, she, she was doing things, you know, in her PVC Mac on a Saturday morning. Or, you know, she, uh, you know, she, she was going out to, 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 you know, to parties and, and all the rest. Wow, you know, here come the 60s and they're swinging. You know, even if you're only, you know, a very young child, you had a, 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 a window onto adult life. All the fantasy, of course. On that very happy note, Lynn, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.